Now, when I was asked to do this, I said, you realize I teach civil procedure, right? Uh, the topic that uh, is one of the more reviled uh, topics in the law school curriculum that I'm sure the alumni would most like to forget. So why would you have someone come and talk about civil procedure? And that's understandable. Who wants to talk about or hear about personal jurisdiction? I mean, do we really want to talk about that today? We may. Uh, we may talk about that today. Uh, topics like subject matter jurisdiction, pleading, joinder, discovery. I see people falling asleep already. Uh, but what I want to do today is, is to make sure that these topics which certainly don't capture the public's imagination. You don't see these topics on the nightly news. Uh, it's not as interesting as some, at, at least at first blush, uh, to constitutional law. Uh, of course, policing is in the news. Uh, but civil procedure, uh, to some, is, I think, uh, not as interesting. And what I want to leave you with today, and I will be brief, I know that's an important thing on a nice day like this after lunch, is to make sure that everybody uh, has at least some appreciation of how important civil procedure is. Now, how did I come to the view of thinking that civil procedure was or is so important? I had the great fortune of having Arthur Miller as a civil procedure professor. And he is one of the giants in the field. And his passion and love for civil procedure uh, was really visible in the classroom. And he uh, transmitted that to the students every day. And he, he was very uh, adamant about making sure that we understood how important procedure was. And so on the first day of class, he came in, uh, and he's a very intimidating person, uh, and he said, I'll let you write the substantive law. If you let me write the procedure, I'll win every time. There's no question about that. And what was he trying to communicate by that? His statement highlighted the important relationship between the substantive law and procedure. And what he was really trying to say is that the substantive law can only really become operative if the procedure is designed in a way that's going to allow that. And our appreciation for that at the outset was very important to setting the tone for the class. Now, now how is this so that procedure is the the vehicle through which the substance becomes real. Well, if you think about substantive law, it's really an abstraction. You have these legal pronouncements uh, that are articulated in laws, and how do they become more concrete? Well, it's a mixture of socialization, of course. Uh, there's general deterrence or fear uh, that we have, particularly on the criminal side. And then there's specific enforcement when you have different uh, violations. But on the criminal side, we understand, for the most part, how that takes place. And there's pretty strong socialization and, and general deterrent effects. But on the civil side, uh, those effects are not as strong. And we rely more, in our system at least, on a system of private enforcement. And private enforcement takes place largely through civil adjudication. And so the civil adjudication system is a critical partner in the project of making the substantive law more real. So it's not just about private dispute resolution. That's an important thing that people need to understand, that the civil adjudication system is more than just private dispute resolution and more than just compensating those who have been wronged, but it's a critical component of the law enforcement project. And so that's where civil procedure comes in. Now, those concepts that I mentioned earlier, personal jurisdiction, pleading, joinder, uh, discovery, summary judgment, these are different phases in the process you guys are all familiar with. 
uh, or different standards that one has to satisfy at each stage. Well, each of these different principles can be calibrated in different ways that are either going to facilitate or frustrate access to the courts and frustrate the ability of victims or facilitate the ability of victims of private wrongs to use those courts. Again, not just to resolve their individual disputes, but to do their larger part in this law enforcement project. So the greater or more onerous that these procedural hurdles are, the less litigants are going to be able to access the system, which has the potential to result in under-enforcement of the substantive law. In other words, if the rules of procedure do not provide victims with a viable path to vindicating their rights, the underlying legal prescriptions that we care about will not be upheld. Further, if legal transgressions are not met with meaningful and publicized consequences, the substantive law will have less force and the underlying policies behind those laws will not be fully achieved. Now, Charles Clark, who is largely regarded as the father of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, he was the original reporter to the advisory committee in 1938. And this group of reformers understood very clearly this message of the important relationship between procedure and substance. And he was fond of referring to procedure as the handmaid of justice. And he said that because procedure is supposed to be crafted in a manner that facilitates access to the courts and resolution of disputes on their merits. And so those reformers in the 1930s designed a system accordingly. So they were driven by that liberal ethos. And that liberal ethos resulted in notice pleading. And something I'll talk, come back to a bit later. You don't have to plead detailed facts to state your claim. Broad open discovery, liberal joinder, uh, all of these, uh, a low summary judgment threshold, all in the effort to facilitate a result uh, that's going to be on the merits at trial. And this system prevailed for several decades, but in the 1970s, the mid-1970s, uh, there was an increase in litigation that was a bit alarming to Chief Justice Berger. And there was a speech that he gave at the Pound Conference in 1976. And there he decried what he referred to as a litigation explosion. And there was this sense that there was too much litigation going on, too many lawsuits, and to his mind it was the result of frivolous claims. There's not necessarily evidence that these were frivolous claims. More likely, he was responding to a trend or, or some changes in the litigation landscape that came together in that time period. A few of those are in the 60s and the 70s, of course. We have a proliferation of a lot of new rights that is going to create an increased demand on the litigation system. There was changes to Rule 23, which is the class action rule that created the money damages uh, class that broadened access in that respect. Uh, and then there was a less discussed about, uh, less discussed change to the discovery rule in 1970 that removed the judge from the initial process and made discovery completely party directed instead of having to be pre-screened by the judge. So some of these changes could combine uh, to result in increased litigation. Uh, regardless of whether some of these were frivolous or not, Chief Justice Berger was certainly concerned enough about it to admonish the rule makers to develop some changes that might bring procedure in line with some more restrictive views towards access to the courts. And so ensuing in a, about a 40-year period that continues today, there's been what a lot of proceduralists refer to as a counter-revolution in civil procedure that has been a series of different changes in the area of procedure that has pushed back against the open access that Clark and the original reformers envisioned. 
and a number of these changes, I'm not going to go through all of them, uh, but there were changes to Rule 16, which is the judicial case management rule, increasing the ability of judges to eliminate frivolous claims. Uh, rule 11 was changed in a way that gave it more teeth in the 1980s, although that was uh, pulled back in the 1990s. Uh, you may be familiar with changes to summary judgment that came about in 1986 as a result of a trilogy of Supreme Court uh, cases that made that standard uh, a meaningful hurdle to getting to trial. Uh, but what I want to focus on in the remainder of my remarks are just a few recent developments uh, that demonstrate some of these moves in the, what I'm calling the restrictive direction. So back to personal jurisdiction, which I promised I would mention, although briefly, hopefully. Uh, personal jurisdiction, as you know, is about where can you sue someone. And my focus is in federal courts. I'm talking about in the federal civil system. Now, in our system, the federal rules limit the jurisdictional reach of federal courts to the scope of jurisdiction of the host states. So if you have a federal court in New Jersey, you're going to have to limit your personal jurisdictional reach to where New Jersey courts could reach. And that results in some nonsensical outcomes, at least in my opinion. So there was a recent case uh, that made it to the Supreme Court uh, in 2011. This is Jay McIntyre versus Nicastro. And you have a United Kingdom company that's a manufacturer of the scrap metal device. Uh, they market this and sell it all over the United States, at least they did uh, at the time. Uh, and this was principally done through these conventions that take place uh, around the country. I think the main one was in Las Vegas. Uh, and so they sold this, as I said, throughout the country. But they had a company called J. McIntyre U.S. that was their independent distributor in the United States. They were based in Ohio. So they would manufacture in the U.K., give it to their distributor in Ohio, and the distributor would send it throughout to the customers throughout the United States. Well, one of these machines ended up cutting off four fingers of, of a person in New Jersey. Uh, so understandably, this person brings a lawsuit, and they bring the lawsuit in New Jersey. That's where this happened. That's where I live. That's where the machine is. Makes sense. Uh, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't bring the case in New Jersey. The company in the United Kingdom doesn't have minimum contacts, that phrase we're all familiar with, uh, with New Jersey. Now, how does that make sense? This is federal court. We're not talking about state court. Why should the victim in New Jersey who didn't travel anywhere else to have this happen to him have to travel to Ohio to litigate this case? And what difference does it make to the UK company whether they have to travel to Ohio federal court or New Jersey federal court from the UK? Uh, so in, to my mind, at least, at least in federal court, uh, it doesn't make sense to require the victims in these types of cases to do the traveling. And what's the more important point there? Well, when you have the victim who has to travel, that's less convenient. Usually, if it's an individual, it's uh, financially burdensome. They may have to take time off of work. And to the extent that the obstacles to bringing a case uh, are raised or the costs of doing so are increased, this is going to frustrate some of those claims, and ultimately, some of them may not be brought. Another consequence of this may be that businesses will be encouraged to structure their dealings with their customers in ways that evade jurisdiction, as Jay McIntyre was successful in doing in this case. So that's a personal jurisdiction example. What about pleading? Well, everyone by now is probably familiar with the Twombly case from 2007, especially if you litigate. Uh, it's either your favorite tool on the defense side or you, it's anathema if you're on the plaintiff side. Uh, you all, you'll figure out where I stand uh, after I describe it. Uh, but the, 
the basic decision, as I mentioned, there was notice pleading at the outset of the, of, uh, the, the federal rules. Uh, fast forward to 2007, it's an antitrust case, and the Supreme Court says that uh, you are going to have to have facts in your complaint that show plausible entitlement to relief. And what does plausibility mean? Well, you're going to have to bring this beyond the level of speculation. Uh, and you're going to have to give us enough facts that show that your suggested liability explanation is more convincing than uh, lawful explanations that we can think of uh, to explain this behavior. Uh, so in that case, we got the plausibility standard. Uh, it was an antitrust conspiracy case. He didn't have enough information that could demonstrate that there was this secret hidden conspiracy. He didn't have a whistleblower, so he was out of luck and the case was dismissed. Now what's the practical impact of that in regular cases? Well, believe it or not, the Twombly decision was applied in a simple slip and fall case in the Western District of Virginia. And I think this was in 2009. So you have a woman who's walking down the aisles of a Dollar General store, slips and falls. Uh, I think she breaks her hip, has a, a significant injury, brings a claim in Virginia State Court, I think it was Amherst County, for $300,000. And she alleges, well, this was in a negligently maintained dangerous condition. Uh, I wasn't warned of this. I was injured as a result. Uh, and I am suing for damages. And it certainly, by all accounts, would satisfy the Virginia fact pleading standard. Well, the case was removed to federal court to Judge Moon in Lynchburg. Uh, and motion to dismiss followed based on Twombly grounds. And the case was dismissed. Not enough information. Judge Moon said that you didn't articulate in your complaint what the liquid was, how it came to be on the floor. Now I say to my students, well, how is this person supposed to know that? And of course, you know, in the future, based on this case, you would try to do more of an investigation to figure that out. But the point is, it's certainly plausible what was alleged in the complaint that there was some type of claim. It doesn't mean it has been proven. And the pleading standard is not supposed to be what are you supposed to articulate to win your case at trial or even to surpass summary judgment. That's not the standard. It's just about what do you need to say to initiate the claim and to obligate the defendant to respond. And in that case, unfortunately, the defendant, uh, the plaintiff, did not have enough information. Now this becomes particularly troublesome in cases when you have intent as a key component. The rules do have some explicit protection, at least they did, uh, for allegations of intent that are supposed to be alleged generally. But the Supreme Court has said that the Twombly standard applies to those too. So if you have state of mind or discriminatory intent, uh, things that you're not necessarily going to have information about at the pleading stage, uh, the Twombly standard is particularly unforgiving. The last example that I'll mention is in the Joinder context. Now it gets really exciting. Joinder is uh, a fancy word for whom can I bring this lawsuit with? Or if, if I want to sue multiple people, how do I do that? Why is joinder important? Well, the way that I explain it to my students, I usually use a case called GM versus Mosley, and I'm not going to get into that case, but it's an employment discrimination case where there's these 10 plaintiffs who want to sue GM collectively. And GM is fighting this tooth and nail. No, you got to sue us one by one. And so I, I use this to my students to say, why, why are they fighting this? Isn't it more efficient to do this all at once? It's divide and conquer. Divide and conquer versus strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers in that if it's just me against GM, it's my word against GMs. If it's 10 of us versus GM in front of the jury, well, it starts to look a little more credible. It's also, of course, more efficient for us to have one lawyer that's working once on all of our claims as opposed to 10 lawyers working on uh, 10 different claims. 
But the most important value that uh, Joinder can bring is in the context of the negative value claim. And I really drive this home to my students. A negative value claim is a claim the value of which is exceeded by the cost of litigating the claim. It's very easy to imagine those claims. You've got a $5 claim, your bank has charged you this phantom fee. What are you going to do about it? You're not going to go to small claims court. That's a $60 filing fee. It's not worth $5. The gas isn't worth $5. So are you just out of luck? Well, that's the point of the class action device. So people who have de minimis harm, but it's on a widespread basis, can come together and make economically non-viable claims viable. And that's not just important so you can get your $5 back. That's not the point. That's part of the point. And a lot of critics of class actions will say, well, the lawyers are taking all the money. The plaintiffs aren't getting anything. They're getting a coupon or they're getting uh, 10 cents on the dollar. But it goes back to what I said earlier. It's about enforcing the law. If you can have people or, or companies that can create or cause widespread de minimis harm with impunity, then the law doesn't have any meaning or doesn't have the meaning that we want it to have. So you have to have the class action device to facilitate those types of claims. Certainly there should be some protections. So what's the recent example? Those of you who have been paying attention to, to uh, Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence on this topic will know about AT&T versus Concepcion. That's a case where you had a, a customer who was supposed to get a free cell phone, turned out not to be so free. I think it was a $34.99 charge that was on his bill. Of course, he's saying, well, what is going on? This is supposed to be a free phone. That's a breach of the contract. Uh, going to sue. AT&T says, no, you got to arbitrate this. All right, well, we're going to arbitrate it as a class, class arbitration. AT&T says, no, you're not. You waived class arbitration rights in your agreement, which all of us have probably signed if we have cell phones. Uh, well, the rejoinder by the plaintiffs was, uh, this unconscionable under California contract law. You can't have an agreement that is going to make our claims completely uh, non-viable and we basically don't have any remedy. And the Supreme Court said, yes, they can. Under the Federal Arbitration Act, that trumps California's unconscionability uh, doctrine. Uh, and so you will have to arbitrate these claims individually, and I believe it was in the Northern District of California is where you would have to go. Uh, American Express versus Italian Colors was another case two years later that followed up. Uh, a group of uh, businesses were suing American Express uh, based on some antitrust violations. And again, this was in the context of a federal statutory law claim, not just a breach of contract claim. The Supreme Court said the same thing even for federal statutory claims. Class arbitration waivers are valid and enforceable. Even if the claims are not worth the amount it would cost to litigate them individually. And Justice Kagan wrote a, a dissent that got some attention where she said, well, Justice Scalia's point is too darn bad. Uh, that was the quote from her opinion, just get over it. Uh, and that's basically what you have to do. You're just, just going to have to get over it. So what is, what is my message with just these brief hopefully brief, uh, examples. Well, one thing I want, want you to take away is, is what I tell my students is there's this myth of neutrality. A lot of people who think about procedure or don't know a lot of procedure think that it's neutral, that it's just this set of housekeeping rules uh, that we can let these experts write, and that's what we've done. You don't even know who creates the rules of civil procedure unless you teach civil procedure. We know who's doing it. Uh, but it's this process that most people don't pay any attention to or care about because they think it's neutral, uh, it doesn't matter. And that's just not the case. Procedure is designed with a particular purpose. 
Uh, it could purpose can be to facilitate or thwart access to courts. Uh, so it's important in that uh, respect. Uh, but the other thing I want you to, to leave with is that there is a threat to access to the courts, I think, uh, that is currently going on. Now, certainly, I don't want to be misunderstood. Too much access can be a problem. You can't just throw the doors wide open and let everybody in. And you can have some frivolous suits uh, and that can extort certain settlements. And that's been uh, some of the cry and complaining by the defense bar is that that happens uh, to too much of an extent. But the empirical evidence for that is not really there. Uh, and the evidence points in the opposite direction, that there isn't really this discovery abuse uh, that most are complaining about. But notwithstanding that, a lot of these different procedural reforms at the court's hands and at the rulemaker's hands continue moving forward. But I think the greater threat right now is to access, because as I said earlier, diminished access does yield under enforcement. So if you're going to have to travel across the country to litigate your claim, like the, the person in the Castro, how many fewer victims are going to be able to do that? What about those who can't have the factual information that Twombly is requiring in their complaint? You're going to have some of those claims that aren't going to be able to go forward. These aren't frivolous claims. They're just claims where they don't have the information at the pleading stage, but they won't be able to go forward. How many people with $5 or $30 claims are going to be able to bring their claims or even bother bringing their claims if there's not a viable class action mechanism for them to do so. So the bottom line is that people really need to pay attention to civil procedure. And if you care about the substantive law and you really want it to have meaning, you'll pay attention to procedure uh, and it won't just be left to the procedural nerds like me. Thank you. <laughs>